Welcome to the Wild Heart Meditation Center podcast. It is our intention to continue offering these audio recordings free of charge. However, if you would like to donate to support our cause and keeping our facility open in Nashville, you can do so via the Venmo app by sending a donation to at Wild Heart Nashville, or you can find us online at our website, wildheartmeditationcenter.org, and click the Donate tab. Tonight I want to talk about the topic of sympathetic joy. If you are here last week, I started speaking on the topic of gratitude. And this is one of the four heart practices in Buddhist meditation. The Buddha referred to these as the Brahma-viharas, which means something like divine abodes or the dwelling place of God. And I like this translation because in Buddhism, you know, the Buddha wasn't so much interested in external sources of salvation. He was interested in what through our own human efforts and endeavors we can do to reduce and perhaps even eliminate human suffering. And that the way that we do this is through our actions, through speech, through physical behavior, but also our thoughts or actions. And so what we do, we get better at. And we call this karma. And so the Buddha said, we're all responsible for our own salvation, really. And if we want help from God, we should go to where he lives, or she lives, or it lives, or they live. And where do gods live? God, gods live in loving kindness, metta. It's one of the four Brahmaviharas. Karuna, or compassion. Mudita, or appreciative joy, gratitude, and sympathetic joy. And equanimity. So those are the four divine abodes. Buddhist meditation is not just about training our attention to see clearly into the underlying motives of the mind, to look at our kind of patterns of thought, our perceptual patterns, to look at emotions as they come up in the moment. To have more clarity is a part of Buddhist meditation, but also training our intention. This is why I talked about earlier, how do we relate to the mind with kindness, with compassion, with forgiveness? You know, so just being aware is not enough. Because I've had some very harsh awareness in my meditation practices. <laughs> right? Just knowing what's happening is not enough. How do we relate? How do we engage in a compassionate way with what's happening in the moment? And so we train and practice in these qualities of heart, these emotions of kindness, these mental states and attitudes of kindness, these emotions and mental states of compassion, these emotions and mental states of gratitude, and the wisdom of equanimity. So why do we practice gratitude? I think this is something most of us could get behind. In a spiritual practice, it's because being a person that is introspective and is trying to 
engage more skillfully in our lives to reduce our suffering and how we spill out and our suffering that we cause with other people in our life. To be a person that's interested in reducing suffering is a person that has a lot of awareness, right? A lot of acknowledgement of our shortcomings. And this is a part of why we practice meditation, to acknowledge and see our shortcomings. Spiritual practice is heavy work. Last week I talked about the Buddha giving this metaphor of it's like excavating an ancient ruin that's been covered with years and years of erosion and years and years of vines growing over this ancient city. You know, we have to get in and, you know, the dirt's piled up and we have to start digging and uncovering the compassion and the kindness and the joy and the you know, these qualities of heart. Sometimes people think, well, I don't feel very compassionate. I don't feel very kind. And this is what John Peacock refers to as the myth of authenticity that I talk a lot about. In Buddhism, it's not about what you feel, it's about what you do. I don't feel kind, but can I be kind to myself? I don't feel compassionate, but can I practice compassion? Caring for what's painful. And what hurts. And so we want to start looking at what we can do instead of what we can't. This is a big thing with any spiritual practice is we have to start looking at the causes of well-being and how are we actually doing well? How can we find relief? How good are we at meditating instead of how bad we think we are at meditating? And so in order to do this, we have to start looking for what's working, the causes of well-being. We have to start really inclining our attention, training our attention to look for the goodness in our lives. I also shared last week that I think in order for us to make progress as a society, we need to see each other as capable of progress. If we get too deflated and too defeated by our social, political world that we live in, by the nature of the demise of our climate, not to dismiss these things as real, but if we get too overwhelmed by the burden, we can start to have a pessimistic and negative view on humanity. And that doesn't lead to encouragement and action. It leads to inaction. It leads to hopelessness and despair. And so I read this quote last week, but I want to read it again. It's been on my mind quite a bit lately. I feel like it's very relevant. It's by Howard Zinn. He says, To be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic. It is based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion sacrifice, courage, and kindness. What we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. If we remember those times and places, and there are so many where people have behaved magnificently, this gives us the energy to act and at least the possibility of sending the spinning top of a world in a different direction. 
And if we do act in however small a way, we don't have to wait for some grand utopian future. The future is an infinite succession of present moments. And to live now as we think human beings should live, in defiance of all that is bad around us, is itself a marvelous victory. It's important that we see the whole picture of not only our collective humanity, but of our personal humanity. That life is beautiful and tragic. That we are both doing the best we can and we can do better. And gratitude is inclining us towards a side of the coin that I think a lot of us struggle to look at, which is how are we doing the best we can? If we see what we're doing right, then we can support the causes of goodness in our lives and we can keep doing those things. But if we think, oh, I should just always do right, Let's look at how I'm doing wrong. If we get too consumed by our problems, we get deflated. So gratitude, or sometimes it's referred to as appreciative joy from a Buddhist perspective, is a wise response to the success and joys in our life. The first level of gratitude is more along the lines of what I call appreciation. And it's delighting in the simple pleasures of life. Like this means just pleasure. Pleasant sounds, pleasant sights, pleasant smells, these flowers that are now dying. (laughs) You're taking delight in things of the sensory world. Now the practice here is a hard one because we have to see how or what it's like, rather, to take active delight in a non-attached or clinging kind of way. How do we fully enjoy something knowing that that something isn't going to last permanently? We don't want our happiness to become dependent on temporary sensory pleasures. This is what the nervous system naturally inclines us towards because we like to feel good. When we feel good, the brain thinks I'm safe. And so we're up against this biological system. I shouldn't say we're up against, but we're working with this biological system that equates pleasure with comfort and comfort with security. And we don't want our happiness to be too invested in these worldly pleasures and having things and having pleasant sights and smells and tastes and feelings. The happiness that we seek through spiritual practice, especially through Buddhist practice, is a deeper abiding sense of happiness that comes from being with things the way they are, not the way we want things to be. It's a tall order, but we practice. So what does it mean to then appreciate something and delight in something and then to be in that moment when that something starts to go away and to have that same phrase we use during the meditation. Right now, it's like this. The bowl of ice cream is gone. That pleasant experience is not here anymore. What is it like to be with myself now? 
And we see that how addictions kind of pick up, right? It's because it's this endlessly trying to satiate this craving for pleasure, which means comfort, which ultimately means security. So this is one level of gratitude we practice, non-attached appreciation that we practice. Another level of gratitude is delighting in the skillful actions in our life, the things that we're doing well, the causes of well-being, and the supportive resources. So this means, what, are, what am I grateful for? I'm grateful for this Dharma, this Buddhist path. I'm grateful for my meditation practice. I'm grateful for the progress I've made through my spiritual practice. And progress is a tricky word. We talked a little bit last time about how we talk about spiritual progress in air quotes. But uh, practicing delighting in what supports us and the resources, that's how we cultivate gratitude in our lives. And tonight I want to talk about sympathetic joy, which is, I refer to as advanced Dharma practice. (laughs) It's level four Jedi Dharma heart practice. Because this is delighting in the joy and success of others. So what is sympathetic joy? I sometimes like to break things down kind of in their definition terms first. And sympathetic in this sense means the act or capacity of entering into or sharing the feelings of interest or interests of another. So it's the act or capacity of entering into or sharing the feelings or interests of another. And I like that. Sympathy means entering into, right? It's like recognizing and seeing and being a part of the feelings or interests of another. And then joy means a peaceful or uplifting emotion that results when we feel connection or delight. A peaceful or uplifting emotion that results when we feel connection or delight. So then sympathetic joy would mean something like the practice of entering into and actively delighting in the joy and successes of others. So I'll say it one more time because there's a lot in it. The practice of entering into and actively delighting in the joy and successes of others. So how do we enter into and delight in the joy and success of others? I think there are kind of two parts of this. One is we have to recognize the joy and success of others. We have to see and seize opportunities, the many opportunities we have throughout our day to take active delight in other people's joy. So that means we have to practice that because it's not just going to happen. I don't know about you, but I don't just spontaneously all the time feel boundless joy for other people's happiness. It's like, oh, another job promotion. Good for you. (laughs) Your tall and skinny house looks so great next to mine. (laughs) I'm not bashing. I'm a little jealous. (laughs) Right? And so we have to recognize opportunities to practice. And then we have to practice appreciating, which means that we actually try to feel with 
And this actually happens on a bodily level. This means that when we recognize, we start to work with the internal experience of what comes up. And that may mean that when we first start recognizing the joy and success of others, you may feel that pit in the stomach feeling, that contracted sense of like, and we'll talk about these things later, but like that missing out or that kind of scarcity that can come up or that feeling of jealousy or envy, whatever we want to call it. And so then we start to work with that part of the body in the moment. It's like, oh, can I breathe through that? Is there any joy in this body? Can I feel, can I feel, can I see the joy in this person? Sometimes it helps for me to actually physically look at the person's face. Because I know what it's like for me to feel joy when I'm excited about something. And sometimes it helps more to connect with like a little kid. Little kids are really good about sharing their joy. I'm just thinking about like my nephew and some of his friends were playing outside the other day. And I've gotten in the habit, because I work with adolescents and younger kids, they really need a lot of praise and positive like affirmations and support. And so I've gotten in the habit of just pointing out things that kids do well. And my nephew and some of his friends were playing this a few months ago and I just remember they were like on a scooter or something and he was like jumping off of a small curb and I was just saying, hey, good job, that's a great jump. And then his friend grabbed the scooter from him and <laughs> went off the curb. <laughs> I said, oh, good job. That was great. And then he said, watch this. And he went off the curb and put like his foot out and jumped off. You know, and they just kept this up. For, they could have gone the whole day just getting the, you know, praise. And so sometimes when you see someone's enjoyment, it helps us to kind of bring that emotion forward. And, and this is a lot in our nonverbal kind of body language where we can access that. We'll talk a little bit more how to practice. But I want to talk a little bit about this two-part process. Recognizing the successes and joys of others and appreciating, taking active delight and feeling. So just like being with these kids, we want to be awake to moments where we can see and validate other people's joy. And I've noticed that myself as a helping professional, a lot of opportunities to practice this like in individual therapy. You know, people tend to be really hard on themselves. I think we're all, I'd say at least most of us are wired to be our own worst critics. And so sometimes when someone comes into my office and they sit down and they just are full of regret about something they did, I'll sometimes ask them to tell me the story first about what they did right. I'll say, I want to hear about what you did wrong and how you fucked up, <laughs> but first tell me about all the things that you did well. And it's hard because, you know, when you're thinking, man, I just screwed this up. I got in a fight again with this person and all the skills we talked about went out the window. I did the same thing. 
when you're in that kind of mindset about what we did wrong, it's hard to turn our mind in the other direction. And so sometimes I'll just ask them, tell me first all the things you did right. And a lot of times it's all the things that they didn't do, that they used to do, or they could have done, that they stopped themselves. They're like, well, I didn't bring up that thing he did a month ago, or I didn't you know, criticize her this time. Or I took a moment, actually, I remember, and I went into the kitchen and I took a couple breaths, even though I went right back into arguing. I, you know, and so it starts to kind of help us to look at the ways in which we're doing well. And in the helping profession, they call this the strengths perspective. Because I think our tendency is to pathologize and to look a lot at what we're doing wrong. Appreciating or feeling the joy of others requires something that's actually, it's called rapture, which is a very biblical sounding word. But rapture actually means our capacity to take active delight in things. So that's one definition of it, our capacity to take active delight in things. So it's almost our ability to feel joy. And Sharon Salzberg talks about this a little bit in this paragraph. She says, Mudita, our sympathetic joy, depends on rapture, our capacity to take active delight in things. And this depends upon our ability to actually let ourselves feel joy. We have to let go of feeling guilt about our own happiness or feeling threatened that it will be taken from us. When we hoard our pleasure or happiness, we feel disdainful of other people and their suffering. At times, we may feel disdainful of ourselves and our own suffering as well. But it is essential that we take delight in our own happiness as a perfect expression of our basic motivation to be free. We want to feel joy. But then when the opportunities come to feel joy, we feel guilty, right? Or we want to support joy in other people. But when the opportunities come to feel joy for others, we feel jealous or envious. So an important distinction here in sympathetic joy and taking active delight in the joy of others is that we're trying to practice delighting in the skillful deeds of other people. So this is the ethical kind of basis of the Buddhist teaching is we're not taking delight inauthentically in things that we don't think are worth taking delight in. So it's not about being inauthentic. It's not like, oh man, I'm so glad to hear you scam those people out of $500 or, you know, sweet score, you you did a great job stealing that money from, you know, whatever it may be. It's not about, you know, trying to enjoy things that don't ultimately support or cause well-being. But this means that even the people that we consider our enemies, where is their skillfulness? What are some of the things that they actually do well? Are they family people? Do they love their kids? You know, do they have a friend in their life that they support? Are they of service in certain ways? Can we take delight in even those small things that these difficult people 
do for the benefit of themselves and others. So why do we practice sympathetic joy? Traditionally, the Buddha taught it as an antidote for jealousy. Jealousy is such a complex emotion. It's a strange emotion because it's simultaneously a desire for something we don't have mixed with a hatred for the one that possesses it or a disdain for the one that possesses it. So it's this very kind of complex thing if you really look into it. It simultaneously produces a feeling of lacking, like I'm missing out. I don't have something that I desire. And a feeling of resentment or disdain for someone that has the thing I feel I'm lacking. Shakespeare writes about jealousy in Othello. I don't commonly quote Shakespeare, but, but this is really good. He says, Oh, beware, my lord of jealousy. It is the green-eyed monster which doth mock the meat it feeds on. I like that. It's the green-eyed monster. It's like this poisonous thing that mocks the meat it feeds on. And so I like to almost as a reflection, you can think for yourself. It's like, how do you act or react when you feel jealous? What do you do? Maybe thinking about a time recently where someone in your life, you know, experienced some joy or had something happen or you were in a group and someone got praised. You know, how do you usually react or act? How has jealousy impacted your relationships? Romantic relationships, jealousy is a huge thing. But even in our friendships, maybe thinking about these things, we can talk about them later if you want to. So then what causes jealousy and envy? I think ultimately is a sense of scarcity, that there's not enough joy to go around. If you're doing good, I'm losing something. Right? Which is actually, when we say it like that, it sounds ridiculous. But there's this sense of kind of being in a situation. I don't know if you've been in a situation where someone's gotten like promoted. And you feel like you just lost out on something, even if you didn't even want the job or you didn't even want the thing that they had. I remember this actually viscerally sitting in a meeting at work one time. And someone... It was announced that they got this coordinator position. And I just was like, I just felt like, why them? I could do that job way better. And I just started thinking about And then I realized, like, I do not even want that job. And I would be horrible at it, really. Just feeling like we, I lost something that I didn't even want. I think that scarcity, sometimes it manifests as like this competition. And I think sometimes our competition really comes from our evolutionary drive, our sense of being needed in the group. So having a position in the group. You know, because honestly, only a few hundred years ago, if we weren't, you know, a resource to the group, we may not stay with that group. If we were hurt... You know, if we were not, had, didn't 
weren't seen as someone that had some strength or some value. And so we see where a lot of this drive is to be seen as the one that has the strength or the value. Competition is about our position of belonging or our likability in a group. So how do we start to work with this delusion of scarcity, right? And our delusion of your happiness is my loss. And how do we start to practice in this ultimate truth, this way that actually your success, your happiness is my happiness. Your well-being is my well-being, ultimately. And it's interesting because these feelings of competition and scarcity and jealousy and envy, I find that they often come up not so much with people that are, I call them the distant enemies, but usually they're the close friends. Right? They talk about sibling rivalry. The people we're the closest to, we feel the most competitive with sometimes. And so when you're practicing sympathetic joy as a meditation practice, you work with all these different categories. You start first by developing gratitude for yourself. And that's kind of a requisite. Being able to practice developing a sense of inner abundance, looking at all of the things that we have, all of the supports that we have, all of the ways that, even though our mind tells us that we lack, that we have been supported or that we have gratitude in our lives. Another way that jealousy and envy kind of work is in this kind of comparison, which is similar to competition and scarcity. It's just another kind of form it takes. And comparison is like someone else's success means something about my self-worth, about who I am. You know, and sometimes they talk about this as judging our insides by someone else's outsides. It's like who I am feels less because you are who you are. Jonathan Foyer writes, Sometimes I can hear my bones straining under the weight of all the lives I'm not living. And so how do we practice? We, Like I said, we start by developing or cultivating just more awareness around what we can take active delight for in our own lives. This may mean some of these things I talked about last week, a gratitude list. This may mean being of service. This may mean sitting down and developing a meditation practice. Practicing gratitude as a reflection. You're bringing to mind the things that we're grateful for. And saying to ourselves, cultivating through meditation practice, I appreciate you. I see you. I appreciate you. Thank you. I appreciate you over and over again, just appreciating, appreciating, appreciating as a meditation practice. And we talked about last week, Barbara Fredrickson, a positive psychologist out of NC Chapel Hill, talked about this positive reward cycle, this virtuous cycle that gets reinforced when we practice gratitude. Because once you start to look for what you're grateful for and you start to feel 
the gratitude or the appreciation, you start to look for more of it. And when you look for what you're grateful for, she says what happens is you get out of your kind of box when we get caught up in our kind of victimization or kind of, you know, those places that we get stuck in of despair or isolation. We start to kind of explore a little bit more. I say with sympathetic joy, sometimes we have to fake it till we make it. I literally went through this a few years ago, practicing making eye contact with people when they are telling me something that they was going well in their life and working on trying to like enjoy it. You know, like just looking into their eyes and saying, that's so exciting. You've worked so hard for that. I bet you're so happy. You know, and I had to really like try that out. For some reason, it was so hard for me. (laughs) You had to really try it out. And again, with sympathetic joy, being of service for people. You know, there's something about that's so immediate about seeing someone's joy. And it's such a, like, it's like a good foundational practice because I, it can, I can be involved in their joy. So I can, like, give something or I can, you know, support someone, do something for someone, and then see their face, their joy. This is a common practice in Southeast Asian countries supporting Buddhist monks is to offer food. And when I was in Burma for a month, people would come into the meditation center almost daily, but every day someone donated our meals. And they would, at the beginning, everyone would stand in a circle around the dining hall, this huge dining hall, and they would do a chant in Burmese appreciating the generosity that we are receiving, that this food is feeding us so we can continue our spiritual practice. And people would come in sometimes and physically come in and they would eat with us. And they would sit at their own table. They weren't allowed to talk to us. We were on a silent retreat. But they would sit at their own table and they would just enjoy being of service, that they got to feed all of these people. And like I said earlier, I try to do this with some of the adolescent kids that I work with. It's also looking at focusing on the good in others. Instead of punishing, seeing when we can positively reinforce the behaviors we like. And sometimes negative reinforcement's needed. I'm not all anti-negative reinforcement. But if I have a troubling kid in one of my groups, I'll try my hardest. And sometimes it just... I just need to kick them out of the group. (laughs) But I'll try my hardest to understand what they like or some of their kind of positive attributes or their personality, what other people like in them. And I'll just directly kind of compliment it. Like, man, you are hilarious. And you can see, like, their relationship just changes. Maybe they're cutting up at my expense and, you know, but I see everyone else laughing And I'll just like kind of come up to them when we're by ourselves and be like, you're so funny. And then I'll try to put them in charge of an important task. 
I'll be like, will you help me guide the meditation next time? And at that point, it doesn't even become about teaching them how to meditate because this kid doesn't know how to meditate. But I'll just ask him, will you guide the meditation with me next time? And I say him because I do groups mostly with adolescent males. And I'll sit down next to this guy and I'll give him the bell ringer. And just giving, I'm talking about like a 15, 16-year-old boy, a simple task and letting him be a leader in the community changes the dynamic. And yeah, sure, it benefits me. It's a little manipulative. But, <laughs> but it benefits the group because we all kind of come closer together. So I want to read something, and we'll um, just kind of open it up. Maybe we'll close with a little bit of practice around this. But this is a uh, quote by Sam Harris that I like to read every time I talk about sympathetic joy. It's from his book, Waking Up. He says, I was suddenly struck by the knowledge that I loved my friend. This shouldn't have surprised me. He was, after all, one of my best friends. However, at that age, I was not in the habit of dwelling on how much I loved the men in my life. Now I could feel that I loved him, and this feeling had ethical implications that suddenly seemed as profound as they now sound pedestrian on the page. I wanted him to be happy. What did I care if my friend was better looking or a better athlete than I was? If I could have bestowed those gifts on him, I would have. Truly wanting him to be happy made his happiness my own. That conviction came crashing down with such force that something seemed to give way inside me. My capacity for envy, for instance, the sense of being diminished by the happiness or success of another, seemed like a symptom of mental illness that had vanished without a trace. And then came the insight that irrevocably transformed my sense of how good human life could be. I was feeling boundless love for one of my best friends, and I suddenly realized that if a stranger walked through the door at that moment, he or she would have been fully included in this love. Love was, in that moment, impersonal and deeper than any personal history could justify. The insight that I had had the character of a geometric proof. It was as if, having glimpsed the properties of one set of parallel lines, I suddenly understood what must be common to them all. a good reminder. You know, and so we practice. We practice what we already know. And I think what we already know is that your happiness doesn't diminish my happiness. That when I can feel connected to the Sangha, this community of humans, 
that are doing the best they can and that can all do better, some of them far better. That I feel connected to something that has purpose. I feel connected to something that gives me hope to keep going. It motivates me. It encourages me. You know, so these heart practices, the Buddha call these the illimitables. They're boundless. They should be practiced. He says one should sustain this recollection. And so we recollect. We reflect. And we'll have some time together to do that now. And some of the things you can think about or share, you know, personal experiences. We talked earlier a couple of the questions, a little bit heavy hitting, but what happens when you feel jealous? What are the ways you usually act and react? You know, what are some times or experiences where you felt delight at the joy of someone else? What is easier to practice, you know, or who is easier to practice with? Like for me, it's kids. Um, so just some things. Please feel free to share whatever's on your mind. Anything that comes up, anything that resonated, questions, comments, thoughts, we'll open the floor. Thank you.